Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. While Future Hindsight is in between seasons, we're excited to bring you an episode from the Democracy Works podcast, which examines what it means to live in a democracy. Future Hindsight will be back with a new season on May 11th. This episode is a conversation with David Frum, a staff writer for The Atlantic and former speechwriter for President George W. Bush. He's a lifelong conservative and vocal critic of President Trump's attacks on democratic norms and institutions. You will hear his thoughts on how we can use the tools of civic engagement to push back against this democratic erosion and build the democracy we want for ourselves and for our future. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Hear more episodes at Democracy Works Podcast or search Democracy Works wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you to Democracy Works and Jenna Spinelli for sharing this episode. Let's have a listen. From the McCourty Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Chris, today we have a very special guest, uh, David David Frum, the uh, writer for Atlantic Magazine, uh, former speechwriter for George Bush, prominent conservative intellectual, author of 10 books, most recently of the book Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic. Uh, is with us in the studio today. Yeah, it's it's a a, a real privilege, and uh, um, boy, it's really uh, interesting just to to hear him uh, hear him talk. But um, we brought him in, and we wanted to talk to him because we feel like um, we have a perspective or a a frame of reference for the stuff that he has written about and his pers- and his attitudes with respect to the Trump presidency that um, have some distinctiveness and, and hopefully some value to people. Well, I think it's more than just about the Trump presidency. I think it's about the state of Western democracy. That's more, right. More broadly. Yeah. Um, and I see him a, as a part of a, a class of people mm-hmm. who are really interesting and prominent and I think quite passionate these days of these uh, conservative uh, conservative authors, commentators, uh Political activists of some uh, political operatives in some cases who have really uh, turned against the uh, Trump administration, turned against Donald Trump pretty early, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, much of the Republican Party who supports them. I'm thinking of Jennifer Rubin from the Washington right. Post, Steve Schmidt, uh, Bill the, Crystal, uh, Bill Crystal, uh, so really uh, prominent Republicans. Nicole Wallace, who's mm-hmm. now on uh, MSNBC, Evan McMullen. Who ran for ran uh, for president? Right, uh, actually. Uh, so uh, there, there is uh, there's something going on there. There are, you know, two kind of main themes in American uh, founding thought. One is the the liberalism of John Locke and the idea that government is just there to. Um, uh, protect property and freedom, and that's about it. And then there's another um, strain that um, it go- goes by the name of, of civic republicanism, which is you know very you know unwieldy and not very clear. But the argument is basically that <clears throat> without um, a, a an, an attention and a concern for virtue, 
and ethics and um, norms of behavior on the part of both leaders and citizens, democracy is very hard to sustain. And I think that is one of the things, one of the themes that really unites these people who have come out against Trump. Well, one of Madison's most famous lines, I think, in Federalist 10 is the idea that men are not angels. Right, right. And, and, and so you have to build a government with the consideration that men, that men are not angels. Uh, it, it, also, what I see in, in Madison that I think speaks to what you're, you're talking about is this idea that, yes, uh, civic republicanism is this focus on, on the citizenry and an informed citizenry, an engaged citizenry, a virtuous mm-hmm. citizenry. It's also on finding high-quality leaders. Right. Madison especially, but most of the founders had no illusions about human nature and no illusions about people who seek power. But they also were very nervous about democracy. They were very nervous about putting power in the hands of the people. Well, they saw they saw the uh, they, they saw Greek democracy as mob rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, they saw the way many of the states were operating at the time before and, the Constitution as as also being essentially mob rule. And the de- and the decline and collapse of the Roman Republic, right? Mm-hmm. This is what everyone, you know, before the United States of America thought that democracy was um, unworkable. And so they were very concerned about the 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 fabric of a, of a society and what was required in order to sustain and um, maintain a, a, a democratic uh, way of life. And that meant that you could not be indifferent to either what was required of citizens, what kind of uh, people they were, and what kind of leaders you had. And, uh, and and David Frum, in particular, but not alone among this group, is very critical of of Donald Trump as a leader. And he's also concerned about the state of an, a state of a, of the people that they would uh, that they would choose somebody who I think he would argue is basically a demagogue. Right. And and, and, and this is something I think they that he and, and many others in this kind of group and people we've talked about previously on, on the podcast. Uh, see throughout Western democracies mm-hmm. more more broadly. When we did our book review show, we saw this in a in, in several of the books that we, we right. reviewed. So again, our our objective is not he, to um, you know talk about you know where Donald Trump stands in terms of um, you know his approval rating or anything like that, but just to raise some some very important themes about democracy that come out of his analysis and out of his book. So um, I think we should uh, bring them on and let's hear from David and Jenna. This is Jenna Spinelli uh, joined here today with David Frum. David, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Works. What a pleasure to be here. So uh, we like to say uh, around the the McCourtney Institute and and on this podcast that we are partisans for democracy. And I think that that is is a label that certainly uh, fits you as as well. You might even put us to shame in in some respects in that regard. You are one of one of the first and and I think most consistent voices writing about the the condition of of American democracy um, since Donald Trump kind of came on to the the political scene. Um, I'd like to to back up and and talk about um, how that how that thought process kind of started for you yes. was was Trump's entry into presidential politics kind of the the catalyst for you, or does it go back farther than that? Um, it was not the catalyst. Well, it, it was the catalyst in the sense that a catalyst is an agent that ignites a reaction whose elements were already present. So I had been thinking a lot about Eastern and Central Europe um, in 
the years before the 2016 election. Spent a lot of time in Ukraine in 2014. Um, I have close friends who are very actively involved in Polish politics. And in the spring of 2016, I spent about a month in Hungary uh, reporting for a story about Hungary that actually never saw the light of day in the Atlantic where I published my work. We ended up cannibalizing a lot of that story for other purposes because instead of happening over there, it happened here. Um, So I was sort of ready for all of this. I was ready for it in another way too, which is um, when Donald Trump appeared on the scene as a declared presidential candidate in the summer of 2015. Of course, he's been on the American scene since the 80s. But when he declared, I at first thought he might actually do some good for American politics because he he seemed such an obviously farcical figure. It was incredible to me that he could actually go anywhere. But what he might do was helpfully disrupt a Republican party, and I have a Republican background, that had become kind of stuck in its ways, never occurred to me that it might actually go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, can, can you talk about your journey from somebody who has been a, a, a very well-known conservative to voting for Hillary Clinton and kind of where, where things stand today? Yeah, well, I, I remain um, a very conservative person. It, and um, there are a number of people who follow my work who um, might be if it, when, when the question next comes up about the role of state in the economy and things like that, might be they'll be surprised I retain the conservative views. I mean, I'm a market person. I'm a limited government person. I'm someone who thinks that low, low taxes are good um, and not just um, and that we should sacrifice some other things in order to keep taxes low. Uh, but those questions of economic organization all have to take place within a context of a rule of law, and a functional democracy. And the lessons of what Europe um, should teach us that all of those institutions that look so rock solid from the point of view of, say, 2005, look a lot less rock solid today. And you have to protect those institutions because um, markets depend on rules. And uh, they de- markets depend on politics. You have to get the politics right or else your markets can miscarry in ways that are very damaging to democracy, um, to uh, honest government, um, and to the aspirations of people. Yeah, and it, would you say that that is kind of the the, the through line that that unites you know uh, yourself, people like Jennifer Rubin, Steve Schmidt, all the you know kind of people of, of conservative ideology that, yeah. that have that, that have come out against Trump? Yeah, I think, and I think one of the things that's really um, it is it's also a through line that explains why this argument has become increasingly an international one. Um, you know, we need to. Uh, you know, that what is ha- that we need? What is happening in Italy is very relevant. It's all, also the one of the other things that is very useful about studying the European examples is, look, there's no question we are living in a world that de- is not doing as good a job delivering for ordinary voters as it did a generation ago, and so this has created a crisis of democracy across the developed world. And sometimes the part of the democ- of the system that gets sick is the right hand part. Um, and that's that's the story in the United States. That's the story in France. But it can also be the left-hand part. I mean, the, the, a figure like Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom is very, very Trump-like. They're important differences, but they're also very ominous similarities. And in Italy, too, um, that uh, this disaffection f- 
from democratic systems, um, from a belief in free institutions. It can show up on the left-hand side of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the other thing that, that kind of butts up against this is perhaps this notion of it can't happen here, right? I mean, we're just seeing this all over the place, that the, the new issue of the Atlantic very yeah. boldly asks the question, is democracy dying? I don't know how much more blunt you can yeah. you can get about it. Um, do you, As you've been kind of out there writing and, and, and talking about these things, do you feel like this this message is, is getting through that, yes, it can actually happen here? Um, it can. It is happening here. What We always believe the United States, um, when a fever spreads through the world, the United States will get it last. And that, look, but for 80,000 votes in three states, the United, Americans might have been smug and said, well, yes, we got, you know, we were exposed to the virus, but we didn't get it. So this, there may be something educational, but it's, this is not just an American problem. I mean, the quality of democracy in India, the quality of democracy in South Africa, the quality of democracy in the Philippines, all worse than 10 years ago. And um, countries, like, a country like Turkey, which was 10 years ago a real democracy, uh, certainly 20 years ago was a real democracy, is today an outright dictatorship. And so this is something we, we need to understand that this is going around. Um, the semi-developed world is more exposed than the developed world. Uh, within the developed world, and I think may, maybe many of us carry in mind the old history of the 1930s where the English-speaking countries were the most immune uh, to the anti-democratic disease then, that actually England, and I, I say England, not Britain, because Scotland is, is better, England and the United States are among the most exposed this time around. Right. And so who do you think is, is the, the leader to kind of bring bring back the you know bring back this notion of, of democratic norms or kind of restore the the standing of democracy in the world who takes the lead on that um, well I, I think the very um, the search for leaders is the problem <laughs> uh, because what we're defending the reason that this is such a struggle is on the one side you see charismatic leaders who say I alone can fix it <laughs> On the other side, you see people say, we need to defend institutions. We need to defend meetings. And one of the questions I get asked a lot by younger people is, what can I do? And I, my answer is always, join something. Join something that has meetings. Um, don't join a cause or a campaign, but a regular, develop the habits of democracy. And where it's boring, that's where it's important. Um, at neighborhood advisory councils that oversee you know, um, zoning and uh, alcohol licensing. Um, uh, PTAs, any anything that involves regular working with people of somewhat different views, um, because that's that's what's lost. I mean, that I think one of the reasons that, that um, social media is so important to this. I, I, I th there's a lot of ways in which the impact of social media is exaggerated, but here's one way in which is really important. What social media promises and sometimes even delivers is a completely personalized experience. Uh, you will see the photographs only from the people you like, um, jokes only that you think are funny, political comments only that are agreeable to you. If you see anything you don't like, you can el instantly eliminate it. Uh, and you can live in a world made up of um, – that, that's designed or seemingly so just for you. Actual politics is could not be more different. You have to work with, pe work with people who are very different from you, whether you like it or not. You have to find ways to achieve common purposes. And so politics – feels old-fashioned. I mean, you see a, a lot of sort of glitzy consultants will say, well, politics is so 19th century, uh, we have to find ways of bringing it into the 21st century. What they mean is we have to find ways of making it more personalized. But the, but the 
fact that other people are different from you is something that is not going to change. Um, and if you're going to be an active participant instead of a passive consumer, you have to work with people who are different from you. And and that's why these, when you say the invoking leadership, the, the moment you say, I, I'm going to, um, I mean, it's obviously, it's a powerful human hunger. I mean, we want leaders. The human desire, think how powerful the human appetite for messiahs must be if you can believe something as facially ridiculous as that Bernie Sanders could be the messiah. But people believed in him. Um, and for no reason. <laughs> He's just a cantankerous, cantankerous, unpleasant, unfunny Larry David cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as was often said, that the, the, the um, person who should have been most grateful that Ted Cruz was elected to the U.S. Senate was Bernie Sanders, because before Ted Cruz got there, Bernie <laughs> Sanders was the most disliked member of the U.S. Senate, and after he was only the second most disliked member of the U.S. Senate. Um, uh, but people want this, and what they don't understand is the answer is you. I'm sorry, this has turned into a long speech. No, let, no, that's okay. That's let, okay. let me say one more thing about this. Um, and because for a student audience, this is especially important to say. Uh, one of the great, truly charismatic figures in American history, and he was on the left, was a man named Eugene Victor Debs, founder. He was a union leader, became a candidate for president on the Socialist Party ticket. And he was a, a legendary orator and, and a man of tremendous courage and personal presence, a truly charismatic figure. And followers in the socialist world looked to him. And he would tell them, I would not lead you to the promised land if I could, because if I could lead you in, someone else could lead you out. And his message was, you have to do it yourself. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting to think about. I feel like in, in, in some ways, you know, um, uh, my generation and, and, and college students today, they're in some sense more individualized and that they have you know, more freedom and access to, to more information and they can you know, be who they want to be in so many ways. But there is this like sense that you know you you really need someone else to, to, to tell you it's okay or to you know put the the, the rules in place for right. you well when you talk about access to information it's true information has never been more potentially abundant than now but the flip side of that access is it has never been more up to you whether you use the access or not because it is also possible today to be ignorant um, on a spectacular scale. And it's possible to be relatively ignorant just by you know, saying, I, I'm not going to use this access. I'm going to use my time and these powerful social media for other things. Um, or I'm going to disconnect from politics and apply my, my curiosity to something that is completely apolitical, something completely individualistic. Um, and that all of those things become possible. And when that happens, um, uh, you make it possible for politics to become a hobby. And as politics becomes a hobby, it's taken up by hobbyists, and hobbyists are not like everybody else. So, what what do you make of some of the the civic renewal efforts that that we've seen? There's certainly been increased efforts to increase voter registration yeah. and, and get people more more involved in in, in local politics. And, I think and super like exciting, super exciting, super important. And the more local, the better. Um, and you know, watch cable news if you want to. You know. Be on Twitter if you want to, but don't let it consume so much time. And don't be so consumed with the national question that you disconnect from your local political situation because that's that's where you develop. The, one of the most important articles in that issue of The Atlantic you were kind enough to refer to uh, was by my editor, Yoni Applebaum, who talked about the habits of democracy. And, uh, you know, our parents and grandparents were more likely to serve on a jury than we are. Um, Living in the District of Columbia, where there are only about 550,000 people, 
um, and uh, you end up serving on juries a lot. And that experience is really instructive. That was the place where your grandparents learned how to participate in a democracy, even more than at the voting booth. Having a potentially very important decision about another human being in the hands of six or 12 people uh, and with chosen almost completely at random, very different experiences and having to work something out. Um, and uh, those experiences, I, uh, if you haven't had enough of them, I encourage you to seek out more. And if you're tempted to shirk duty, jury duty, and it's so inconvenient, I understand that. I've certainly done my part of trying to shirk it. But if you, once you're stuck and you have to do it, at the end of it, you say, that was one of the most valuable things I ever did. Yeah, and it's, it's tough from like a, an information, you know, so so you, you know, the, the Atlantic, again, to use an example, I mean, I'm sure that the most red stories or anything Donald Trump is on. It seems like he yeah. kind of sucks the air out of everything so much that even when you try to like look yeah. and pay attention to something else, he's still kind of, you know, right there. Well let me put it this way. If 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 the alternative is reading more about Game of Thrones, um, which we used to set, you know get a lot of clicks for those stories, um, you know, I then Donald you're applying your brain better reading about Donald Trump than you are about Game of Thrones. But if it is distracting you from understanding uh, your town budget um, or you know uh, this, um, arguments about local development, then then it is yeah you, you should do less and more of what is more of what is un, under your own control. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the title of of the, the the talk you're giving today here at Penn State is all about the the guardrails of of democracy, which right. refers back to a 2016 piece that you wrote. Um, can you kind of take us through what what some of those those guardrails are and kind of where you think things stand with them today versus where they were when you wrote that in in, in 2016? Right. Well, the the guardrails of democracy in in that 2016 piece were um, it was about a series of restraints that we imagined were there that we'd crash through. Um, and none of the, if the, we always thought those guardrails would hold. One of the guardrails, let me focus on just one. Well, I'll talk about more of them tonight. Is, is the guardrail of ideology um, that we used to think that what was really important about America that American politics was becoming more ideological. This is what we would have said. We were having this conversation half a dozen years ago. The Republican Party was becoming more conservative. The Democratic Party was becoming more liberal. Ideology was mat- mattering more and more. Um, but what that meant was the the upside was you were, you were more demagogue proof in a highly ideological because what mattered was what the candidate stood for. Sure, check the boxes. You're for this, 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 this. You're liberal. You're for this, this, this. You're conservative. Um, you know, and we can compare and contrast. Uh, it doesn't matter what you yourself do all that much. And we discovered in 2016 that actually ideology did not matter that much. Uh, that Donald Trump had uh, he just he routinely. Um, uh, disregarded old ideological norms. He didn't seem even to know what they were oftentimes. Uh, it didn't matter that he he tapped into something more primal. And as, um, I mean, ide- excessive ideology is also dangerous, but at least it was something that imposed some something on the political system that was not just you've got a charismatic leader, you follow him, you do whatever he says. Mm-hmm. And, and so does, does that explain kind of the split of the uh, Republican Party, the people that kind of held to that ideology versus the people that kind of followed that that Donald Trump? Um, no, hmm. I don't. Because the, the thing I, that is always amazing is you think Donald Trump does something that you would think would be well, one crucial element of Republican ideology since the Reagan years has been the belief in open, open international trade. And that's just a, you know, talent, you know. 
just a signature line. Um, uh, open international trade. And, and I wondered when Donald Trump's extreme hostility to trade um, manifested itself, whether that would not jolt the congressional Republicans into restraining him. And it has not. It has not. That in, in fact, he is genuinely changing the Republican Party. I've heard um, super orthodox Republicans, people who lead groups, um, people who lead groups with big donors saying things like, well, maybe the president has a point about these one-sided trade deals. And no, he does not. But second, I can't believe you are saying that. I can't believe you're saying that because three years ago, if when Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton were arguing, when Bernie Sanders was authentically saying it and Hillary Clinton was pretending to believe it, uh, you were horrified. Back then, you were horrified, and now you are saying the same thing. So, so why are they saying that? What? Because um, once you sign up, once you jump on the Trump train, it ain't a train, because trains follow tracks. Once you jump on the Trump bus, you're a prisoner. You have to go wherever that bus is going. And the farther you go and the more awful things you accept, uh, the more you need to defend the driver, or else you look not just like a foolish person, but... Uh, not just like a weak person, but a complicit person. How do you kind of separate the the person from what they what they believe in? Or you know, it, it seems like it's also kind of changing that you know fundamental fabric of like the the way we talk to each other yeah. and and those kind of things. Well, um, that's a, that's a very complicated question, and there are a lot of different answers. I would say, let me start with the last piece of it: the way we talk to one another. Um, political communication is not about self expression. Uh, Political communication is about persuasion. And so when you talk to someone who thinks differently from you about a lot of things that that, and if you're actually trying to make an impact, you must begin by searching for the thing on which you agree. Once you find one thing you can agree on, uh, then you can develop. Okay, well, you since you think this, don't you notice that when you think that, that it contradicts this more fundamental commitment you've got? So you need so you begin by probing for areas where of connection and similarity. Um, uh, but what is also true, and to go back to the first point, is, you know, people say um, don't condemn Trump voters. And, of course, we shouldn't condemn any group of human beings for any reason. I mean, they're our fellow creatures. Um, we're fallible. They're in two. Um, and when people do something, uh, we need to understand it. And we, we, should, we should assume that our fellow creatures are, um, you know, no better and no worse than, than us. That said, it's also true that Trump succeeds by appealing to what is bad in people um, and what is cruel, what is domineering, what is um, brutal, what is ignorant. And that's also part of the story. And in a way, it's also unjust to people to say, I'm, I'm not going to treat you like... Um, people of limited capacity, children or uh, people with some kind of mental impairment. Uh, if, if someone stands up for what is wrong, um, it's interesting to know why, you know, here's something that looks so brutal and cruel. Uh, why does it speak to you? And so not for the purposes of communication, but for the purposes of understanding, we need to know that, that Donald Trump, uh, he's a limited person in a lot of ways. Um, he's not a person you want to get your information about anything from. But he has a deep understanding of what is dark in the human soul, and he has a deep ability to find that thing and connect to it. And he's built, both in business and now in politics, organizations by recruiting people whom he can 
reach the dark place in. Right. And so if, if it was we're kind of figuring out, you know, how how to to revive or, you know, how to kind of bring these conversations about democracy back to the forefront. Is there a, a time in, in American history when you think we had kind of peak democracy, so to speak? Or, you know, not to say that we should view it as, as a, a, a nostalgia or to, you know, something that we should go back to, but things we can, can draw I, from. I don't think we should ever look back. <laughs> when we can learn. We should, I'm a historian by academic training and I'm interested in it. We should always learn from the past. But Bertolt Brecht, the German poet, said, we must always prefer the bad new days to the good old days. Um, this is our time. And and what is – there are things to learn from the American past. But the American past, like all past, also deep flaws. Um, I think our um, – the, the thing that should keep us in mind is not a backward glance over the shoulder for anything other than information. But we should also say – count ourselves blessed that we live at a time when our actions can make a difference for our country and uh, to step up to that responsibility. And that includes learning to be a responsible user of the social media that are implicated in our problem. It also means uh, learning to be a better neighbor. Um, you know, so much one of the ways to predict who voted for Donald Trump was social isolation. Um, if, you had, if you had lots of friends, um, if you had a, a stable family, you were much less likely to be a Trump voter than if you were more alone. And uh, so bear that in mind because other people's lone, lonesomeness impinges on you. Um, I have a friend who um, went door knocking in um, pro-Trump areas in Nevada in 2016. He's a um, very successful person from the Bay Area in the tech industry. I mean, part of the America that has done well. And what he was struck by was, as he was knocking on doors, as everybody in that area was home. They had nowhere to go. And the men were home, too. Um, they had nowhere to go. Uh, they, and they had nothing to do. And they were home watching television. And he thought in the area he knew, if you stopped at people's doors <laughs> at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, no, not even the pet would be out with the dog walker. And no one would be home because they were enmeshed in a complex world. Um, and... So one of the questions we're all left with is, you know, uh, we live in a society which a lot of people are being left behind by technological change, and someone has to reach back and grasp them and pull them along. So we're going to um, close here. The the McCourtney Institute, we do something called the, the Mood of the Nation poll, and it's interesting um, you mentioned uh, people kind of disengaging from from politics as a result of being so upset or so angry. Our, our latest poll findings actually kind of uh, back that up. But anyway, we um, there are, are four questions that that we always ask as as part of the poll. So we'll think of this as kind of like a like a lightning round, mm -hmm. um, so to speak. So um, thinking uh, specifically about American politics, what makes you angry? What makes me angry? Um, well, look, every day there's something to make me angry. And so today is a, a, a different day. I th but I think um, the thing that makes me angriest in the Trump era is watching the leadership of American democracy undermine and even attack America's role in the world. Um, that uh, the Trump administration, if, if it, Donald Trump has one big idea, it is that he does not, he sees the world as a place for egotism. 
Um, and the United States is an egotistical nation like China. Uh, it's no different. It's a competitor. It has no friends. It has no allies because he has no friends. Um, and that, there, that anything that purports to be a partnership is, is just a delusion. Uh, it's a zero-sum game. I only win if you lose. And we, our parents and grandparents in the years after World War II built structures of peace and trade that are valuable beyond our any easy ability to describe. And they are in danger now. And that is probably item number one on my list of outrages. Right. And uh, what makes you proud? Um, I'm... There's so, there are things that make me. There are many things to, to, uh, to make me proud, and one of the um, that, that's it's important to keep keep hope alive. Um, one of the things that I have been amazed by is the willingness of people to step up to read. I mean, that's maybe that's in my narrow area. I, I encounter the lot rising level of civic engagement just through the intensity. And people, I don't just feel that people are reading more, and I experience this. People are reading my work more, but they're also reading it in a much more engaged way. Um, that if I were writing something in 2006, uh, they would say, well, I, I saw your article. Um, and they would have seen the byline and the headline, but they would have a very hazy recollection, if at all, of what was in it. Maybe they were just being polite. Uh, today, people really seem to engage with work, and uh, they care. It's important to them, and that's, that's very exciting. Uh, what makes you worry? Oh, my God. <laughs> Wor well, worry is my default setting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, Americans have this assumption that because they're Americans, everything has to work out for the best. Uh, everything may not work out for the best for other people, but the, in the United States, it's different. Everything works out for the best. Um, Ronald Reagan used to end, end his anecdotes by saying, of course it will be this way, we're Americans. I think Americans need to take on board. They're not so different from the rest of humanity, and there's no guarantee that things work out well here. Every political thing ends because it's human and all human things end. Uh, the American Republic is not going to be here forever. We hope it will be here for a lot longer than us, but it will not be here forever. And I worry that Americans take a lot for granted um, and therefore fail to make effort when the effort is required. And then finally, uh, what gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope is that people are energized, um, that they will, um, the capacity for disgust, for shame, um, is strongly motivating, um, and that they will um, they will act in in good time. Um, but what to go back to the worry? I we need them to act in constructive ways. Um, Senator Ted Cruz and his wife were out for dinner in a Washington restaurant, and a mob spot uh, someone spotted them, and a mob of people formed and began to curse them and yell at them and make it impossible for them to continue eating eating dinner. And when oppositional activity flows into these kinds of mob forms, symbolic violence. That wasn't actually violent, but, but you know, you're driving somebody to a restaurant by sort of making violence visible and possible. Um, that a lot of, if, if this political energy goes in those directions, um, those are, uh, are anti-democratic too. Um, and, you know, you don't have to like everybody on the other side of politics from you. You don't have to respect everybody, but you have to behave as if you do. Um, and you have to. And the reason when I when I've talked about this, people say, "Well, I don't like Senator, Senator Cruz did this bad thing and that bad thing, and therefore he doesn't deserve uh, common courtesy." And I'm not endorsing that. I mean, he, everyone deserves respect. But but even if you believe that, I say the, the thing that governs how you behave is not what you think the other person is. It's what you think you are. Um, and uh, if you, it, when you behave in these ways. 
um, you attack the system you supposedly uphold. And it makes me question what you really uphold. a little longer while ago, there was a terrible incident where a man named Richard Spencer, who's a famous white supremacist, was talking on the on the corner of the street, and somebody came up by, behind him and, without warning, punched him in the face right in front of the camera. And then there was this stupid Twitter debate about, is it okay to punch a Nazi? And what I'm just struck by is people who defend punching Nazis don't hate Nazis. They like punching. Um, and they will find a reason to punch people. And people who like punching are enemies of society. And I don't care if they come up with some stated good motive or so-called good motive. They are, um, they are, the the thing they're punching, they're also defending because that impulse is a fundamentally anti-democratic, um, illiberal, asocial impulse. And uh, I worry that we may end up empower in the name of rescuing democracy, we also give cover to people who are important enemies of democracy, too. Right. Do you think we'll see a new set of, of democratic norms emerge in the, the post-Trump era? Um, I hope so. Um, I think a lot of the old democratic norms were, were pretty good. Um, I mean, there are some important institutional reforms that are needed. Um, you know, we do have to... Uh, we're much more class-bound society than we used to be. We have much greater concentrations of wealth. Uh, we're going to need to figure out some new rules of the road for cope, coping with that. Um, political corruption is much more of a problem than it was a, one generation ago. Less, I mean, three generations ago, there was lots, but more than a generation ago, we're going to need some norms to deal with that. Um, and we are going to have to deal not just with norms, but with the substance of politics. We have to make democracy deliver better. That's where all this, to go back to where we started, um, the reason why you see th- these anti-democratic tendencies from Poland to France to the to the United States to Great Britain and especially England um, is because so many people don't feel that democracy worked for them in the way that the people who came of age after World War II and retired, you know, 50 years later, believe that for them it had worked. Well, we, we can't, unfortunately, solve all the problems of democracy on, on this show, but um, your insights have, have been wonderful. Thank you so much, David, for your time today. Quite a pleasure to talk. Okay, we're back, and uh, thank you, David, and thank you, Jenna. That was a terrific interview. That was really impressive. Really interesting, really smart guy. To, yeah, would that we were all to. that articulate. <laughs> Not really sure. I'm happy about having a follow. Yeah, exactly. It's easier to come exactly. first. Uh, you know, I thought that much of what he spoke about came brings us right back to where you and I started. Uh, he had a line there where he said, the search for leaders is wrong. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to what I essentially see as a pitch for democracy works. Right. I agree. I mean, it, it, it doesn't it's not surprising that we saw this in terms of our own kind of frame of reference. But still, the idea that you know, there's nothing simple, nothing easy, nothing self-actualizing about about politics. It's hard work. It's uncomfortable. It's often unpleasant. But there is still something absolutely essential about it. Well, he actually he explores the theme in a little bit different ways than some of our other author, uh, some of our other guests mm-hmm. on the on the on the show, because actually he doesn't make it seem so unpleasant. He says, go out and join something. Yeah. And and. It it reminded me of some of the discussions we've had about civic education and how, you know, there are certain kinds of skills and that you pick up by 
other things that you're doing, mm-hmm. uh, being in the theater club, something right, like. right, right. As he said, join something. You know, get get into the get into the habit of get into the habit of democracy, mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. talking with other people, arguing with other people, working with other people to get something, get right, something right. done. So, I mean, you know, the, the I, I t- absolutely agree with that. And I do think, you know, I mean, he he did kind of acknowledge that that this is not always fun. It's not the best way to spend an evening. But it's also true that, as we've said before, that there's something um, – deeply humanizing about this activity, right? And and that it's only in this kind of face-to-face interactions when you're dealing with other individuals with whom you disagree as people face-to-face that you have really an opportunity to um, honestly engage and to actually move towards some kind of resolution. And, and, and democracy, as I understand him talking about it, is about Oh, pulling out the best in people, not the worst. Well, at and, least making that possible. Making that possible. I mean, he had a great line there where he talks about the darkness of the human soul. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there a better statement that you can find to describe what a demagogue does? Right, right, it, right. Is to find the darkness of people and exploit it. I, I was especially struck by that one in terms of just this idea that if people do not feel like democracy is working for them, it becomes very easy for them to 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 reject it, to spurn it. And and that judgment is, for many people, fundamentally economic. And, it, you know, when you think about what has happened um, after the, the, the Great Recession, you, you see that in, in a lot of countries, not just here, but around the world, where, well, wait a minute, this isn't working out for me. There's got to be somebody who's responsible for this. But in any case, I don't like where we're, where we're getting and tell me what else you got. Right. I mean, you see that here. You see that in Hungary, Poland, Turkey, uh, throughout the world. There, there, there is this kind of notion that um, that in order to if you really want to get things better, you need to make things better for people. And, and he makes the point well that others have as well, that this is happening on the left and the right in, in different places. As right. he points out, in the, in the United States says it's the right hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in other places, it's the left mm-hmm. hand. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, demagoguery it, it, is not and populism. And populism. Right. Yeah. Right. These are not limited or or even, you know, even track one way or the other. They just um, they're just op- <laughs> they are. Um, conditions that an opportunist can understand and exploit. And I really do feel like that's something that you can identify in country after country after country. Yeah. Well, let's bring it in for a close. That was, yeah. uh, that was a, well, terrific interview, covered a lot of subjects that have been important to us on Democracy Works. I really, uh, yeah. And, and the one uh, takeaway, I think, is just this idea that you do have some, there is something you can do about this. If you're if you're unhappy with the condition of our politics, um, become political. Yes, and 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 maybe an antidote to the constant focus on the presidency and Donald Trump, which you know, in many ways, I think this constant focus on the leader, and I, I kind of heard this a little bit from him too, although he didn't quite say it, is authoritarian in and of itself. Right. We, we shouldn't be so focused on the leader right. all the time. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, his solution to this is focus locally, get involved, get into groups, do the hard work of democracy, right. uh, develop a habit of it, and, uh, and that's how democracy works. And what better note could we ever have to land on? That was, that was out of the park, Michael. Very good. <laughs> From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. Thank you very much for listening.